The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So let's um, carry on where we left off this morning. One of the questions that almost inevitably presents itself when we think about the Four Noble Truths is why did the Buddha present them in that sequence? Now traditionally, the answer to this question is contained within the titles that are given to each one. The first truth is called the Noble Truth of Suffering. The second is called the Noble Truth of the Cause, or strictly speaking, the Samudaya, the origin or the source of suffering. The third Noble Truth is called the Cessation of Suffering. And the fourth Noble Truth is called the path that leads to the cessation, the eightfold noble path that leads to the cessation of suffering. Now, the perceptive student will have noticed that when I read my version of this, I didn't give those titles. Instead, I just said suffering, craving, cessation, path. Now, I'm going to explain in a minute why I did that. Um, which is very unorthodox. And um, I fully understand if you feel that that is utterly unacceptable. (laughs) (laughs) But this is part of my ongoing reflection about these truths. Um, I know it might sound strange to to say this, but I honestly feel that in the last year or so, and I've been studying Buddhism Continuously, it's all I do. I'm a complete fanatic. I have no other. I have no other career. I have no credentials. I've never worked in the real job. <laughs> I'm a fanatic Buddhist, and I thought about this stuff an awful lot. And I, I, I felt recently that. After nearly 40 years of doing this, I'm, I'm just beginning to understand what the Buddha might have said, have meant. I might be barking up totally the wrong tree, but please bear with me and just, if you're interested, um, follow where my ideas are currently at. And this is a work in progress. Okay, the Four Noble Truths. It has become such a a fixed item of Buddhist dogmatics that the Four Noble Truths are the Noble Truth of Suffering, the Noble Truth of the Origin of Suffering, the Noble Truth of the Cessation of Suffering, and the Noble Truth of the Path that Leads to the Cessation of Suffering. And this um, is usually justified, and thereby giving an explanation for the sequencing of the Four Truths, that the Buddha is using a, a, a medical analogy. In other words, first of all, you notice that you are suffering. You have, a, let's say, a pain in your chest. Then the next step is to try to ascertain what it is that caused the pain in the chest. So you go to a doctor, the Buddha, and after examination it's found out to be that you have a particular medical condition. 
you've established now what the origin of that suffering is. That then um, allows there to be um, uh, envisioned a cessation of the suffering. You now know what the cause is. So that allows for you to posit the cessation of suffering. Third noble truth. And then you can put into practice a system of of therapy or treatment or whatever that will lead to the cessation of suffering. That is a very, very common way of explaining these four truths. But nowhere in the canon does the Buddha use that analogy. So again, it's part of the superstructure of our building. Um, It's often... uh, refers back to certain elements in the pre-Buddhist culture where that sort of medical analogy was already found, which, again, I think gives the game away a bit. In other words, this is a process in the Indianization of Buddhism. And um, that is regarded as how the structure of the four truths works. In other words, um, the sequence of the truths goes effect, suffering, cause... (laughs) craving, effect, cessation of suffering, cause, path which leads to cessation of suffering. Effect, cause, effect, cause. Now, I'm not saying that this is, uh, is unreasonable, but it seems to me really rather circuitous and a bit of a sort of imposition of a metaphysics to some extent. You could argue, well, if the Buddha had meant it that way, why didn't he start with a cause of suffering, which would lead to an understanding of suffering, and then consider the path which leads to the end of suffering, with the end of suffering as the goal? Because the aim of the uh, Four Noble Truths within that model is actually the third Noble Truth, not the fourth. I find that odd. I find that odd. Um, now, again, I'm, I'm currently working on this. There is a paper written by a Pali philologist called K.R. Norman where he argues that there are certain philological difficulties with the, the titles that are traditionally given. I'm not a Pali philologist, so I can't explain that, but that has been flagged, which leads to the possibility that those titles those official names, might in fact be a commentarial overlay. Now the advantage of that model is that it, um, it, 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 uh, in, uh, it presents the Buddha's teaching as another strategy to realize the goals of Indian religious practice. As I mentioned this morning, in the Brahmanic tradition, and it's true also in the Jain tradition, the aim of spiritual-slash-religious life is to escape from the round of death and rebirth, escape from sangsara, liberation from the cycle of birth and death. And certainly the way we traditionally interpret the four truths enables us to see them as another strategy to achieve the same goal, a non-theistic Um, presentation of a practice 
which will lead to the same goal as that of the Upanishads, namely the stopping of rebirth. Now, that's convenient if you happen to be an Indian who believes in all those things. But how does that fit the, the parable that I spoke of of the city? Which doesn't seem to suggest that at all. It seems to have a different uh, uh, flavor and a different objective. The objective is that the Eightfold Path leads to the four truths which are like the template for another kind of civilization that could flourish in this world. And it suggests also, and this I think is a crucial point, it suggests also that the Four Noble Truths are not descriptive of something that leads to some final result. And then you can pack up and go home when you've got this final nirvana. But rather, it seems to describe an ongoing process, a continual um, unfolding, a continual engagement with the realities of our life here and now. So that we have the Eightfold Path that leads to the Four Truths, the, the fourth of which is the Eightfold Path, which leads to the Four Truths. Therefore, describing a process of living, a process of being in the world. Now, of course, you are probably aware that I have considerable difficulty making any sense of the idea of reincarnation and the multi-life worldview. Um, I'm not going to go into that here, but uh, the more I think about this and the more that we know about the nature of the human organism and the brain and the emergence of consciousness and so on, I find it very, very difficult to actually um, figure, have any understanding of what that means. That might simply be my own lack of intelligence. May, may, maybe it is. But that doesn't disqualify the fact that I've struggled with these things and they don't make sense. The other thing is, what has been of value to me in Buddhism from the beginning is not that it promises me some kind of post-mortem liberation, but that it actually makes a highly significant difference to how I live in this world here and now. And the great struggle I had, which um, once again happens to be mentioned in my new book, <laughs> uh, my great struggle with Buddhism uh, when I was training as a Tibetan Buddhist monk was to, um, uh, to accept the doctrine of rebirth um, and to accept the arguments for the doctrine of rebirth, which necessarily entailed, in the, certainly in all the Tibetan traditions and, and most of the others, having to embrace a mind-body dualism. In other words, if a death, the body and the brain, everything to do with this physical organism returns to dust, to ash, if there is to re be rebirth, there must be some element, factor X, that does not return to dust, that is not extinguished at physical death, something, and it's usually thought of as some kind of consciousness, very often it's called a subtle consciousness. Subtle is a way of saying, actually I don't know what the hell it is, but <laughs> it's some kind of subtle consciousness. In the, in the Tibetan tradition they even speak of very subtle consciousness. <laughs> 
And um, it's this subtle, very subtle consciousness, or in the Theravada tradition, they talk of this bhavanga citta, again, something the Buddha never mentioned, but again, some special bit of consciousness that carries the karmic seeds and exits the body as it's going up in flames and pops into somebody else's womb. Now, to me, that is a, is, is a, a way of looking at the world that I find unintelligible. We also find, and this is a, 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 a tradition that is, is very specifically Buddhist, you won't find this anywhere in the earlier texts uh, of the Upanishads, um, what the Buddha called the, the, de- the undeclared questions. These are, the world is eternal, the world is not eternal, the world is finite, the world is n- infinite, the soul is the same as the body, the soul is one thing and the body is another. After death, a Tathagata exists. After death, a Tathagata does not exist. Um, I'm not going to go into all the theology, but I think all that means is after death, one exists, or after death, one does not exist. Tathagata is the term the Buddha uses to refer to himself. There are other arguments, and they're in the footnotes to that passage in my book. In other words, these are what we would normally call the big religious questions, the big questions of life that religions are in the business of giving us answers to. Now, the, la- the last set of these seem to address quite explicitly the, the issue of uh, existing after one's death, which requires there to be some sort of non-physical entity that does the transmigrating. And the Buddha is saying, I make no declaration about these things. And yet every Buddhist school has essentially adopted a mind-body dualism. They say the soul is one thing and the body is another. The words used here are jiva and sarira, the animating principle. And the sarira means the sort of brute matter in other words, you know, the physical body and something other than that that animates it. We would call it mind or consciousness or something. And the Buddha is saying, don't go there. All Buddhists did. <laughs> and they, and except for some, I think some ter- in some Theravada teachings, they will say, they will be true to that, and they'll say that re- when you die, in the next moment the continuum of the five aggregates reappears in another form. They don't talk about there being a kind of soul or spirit or subtle consciousness that hops across. But the actual momentum of the kundas, uh, dead one moment, I'm dead one moment, the next moment I'm a zebra in Botswana. (laughs) 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 <laughs> I'm not trying to, to well I, of course I am but, <laughs> I, I'm not trying to make fun of this but unfortunately that is a consequence that is, that is an entirely legitimate, that is one possibility I could be a zebra in Botswana in my next life within one nanosecond now how that happens I don't know but <clears throat> that's the only way you can get around the problem of, of positing some spiritual 
entity going from life to life. Um, so <clears throat> there we have, I think, um, a doctrine that appears again and again and again. Um, it's most famously uh, part of the parable of the poisoned arrow, where the Buddha says that to, to spend one's time trying to find answers to these questions is like a person who is wounded by a poisoned arrow who won't let the surgeon remove the arrow until he knows the name of the man who shot it, whether it was a longbow or a crossbow, whether the feathers in the arrow were those of a vulture or a crow or a heron or a stork. I mean, he teases this out ad absurdum, which is I find very witty. But basically what he's saying is, this is irrelevant. He's not saying giving any answer to these things. He's making no declaration at all. He's saying what matters is the removal of the arrow. In other words, his teaching is primarily therapeutic and pragmatic. And then at the end of, the same, of this same sutta, which is called the uh, Malunkya Putta Sutta, um, the Malunkya Putta Sutta, uh, which is Marjim uh, 63, if you want to look it up, at the end of it, he says, Therefore, Malunkya Putta, remember what I have left undeclared as undeclared, and remember what I have declared as declared. And what have I declared? This is suffering. This is craving. This is cessation. This is the, in other words, the Four Noble Truths. So he sets up the Four Noble Truths as the counter-example of what he has declared as opposed to what he does not declare. Now when the Four Noble Truths are framed in terms of suffering, the origin of suffering, the cessation of suffering, the path that leads to it, I feel that what, the, what is happening here is an attempt to try to uh, frame the Buddha's teaching not as something that has to do with a therapeutic, pragmatic way of life in this world, but rather another way of explaining how we can end the cycle of birth and death, which the Buddha seems to be, not, uh, in, the, in the undeclared questions, not primarily concerned about. So you, what I'm, all I'm really trying to do here is to suggest that we have anomalous texts. We have... We don't have consistency within the Pali Canon. We have contradictory passages. And I find this, um, uh, in a sense, uh, difficult to understand why. I suggested one reason is because the Buddha is always speaking to different audiences in different times with different needs. That is probably, for me, the best explanation. But that doesn't help us answer this question, well, what is it that is primary and original in the Buddha's teaching and what is it is, that is simply a reiteration of teachings and practices and aims and goals that's already part of his Indian culture? Uh, is, are, are you following me or is this getting too academic? All right, you're with me? So let's go back to... Um, uh, the text. Now, I think the solution to the... I think the, the, the most economic solution to this problem 
why did the Buddha present the four truths in the sequence he did? is found in the, the third of the four sections of the text when he presents each truth as being a task to be performed rather than uh, a, a statement to be believed. And he lays this out very clearly. He says, such is suffering, it is to be fully known. Such is craving, it is to be let go of. Such is cessation, it can be experienced, or it is to be experienced, and such is the path, it is to be cultivated. So you have four things. You have fully knowing dukkha, letting go of craving, experiencing the cessation of craving, we're going to come back to that, and cultivating the Eightfold Path. Now, I believe that those four actions are a description of a single unfolding process. That fully knowing suffering, and we'll, I'll give you a sense of what I mean by that, fully knowing suffering is the condition that gives rise to the falling away or the letting go of craving. That the letting go of craving is the condition that allows the cessation of craving. That's a very, that seems very clear. And finally, the cessation of craving, the stopping of craving, is the condition that allows the creation and the cultivation of another way of life, the Eightfold Path. Now, in terms of four tasks which are to be recognized, performed, and accomplished, we can see how the four truths are laid out in the sequence that they are, quite economically. We don't have to do this metaphysical juggle. Each truth is the, as an action or as a task is the precondition for the one that follows. And this, I feel, is not only more in keeping with the sequence of ideas in the text itself, how I mentioned before that the Four Noble Truths, the first sermon, is a, an illustration of the principle of conditioned arising. Um, when this exists, that comes to be. When this does not exist, that does not come to be. When the fully knowing of suffering exists, the letting go of craving comes to be. When the letting go of craving exists, the cessation of craving comes to be. When the cessation of craving exists, the, no, the, the, create, the cultivation of the Noble Eightfold Path comes to be. Now in that way, we can see how the Four Truths are um, a translation of the principle of conditioned arising or conditioned emergence or dependent origination that constitutes what the Buddha described as the key to his awakening. So in other words, we can trace this development from the Bodhi tree experience to the first sermon in an entirely consistent and logical way. Now, I think the, 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 the big issue, I don't think, the big issue I have with the, uh, the traditional model of this is the, this is the truth of suffering, this is the origin of suffering, this is the truth of the origin of suffering, um, lies right there. Craving is the origin of suffering. 
This is such a fundamental Buddhist dogma that no one really, no one questions it. it it's taken for granted. Craving is the origin of suffering. And the text says it very explicitly, at least in its title. Now, a lot of people who come on retreats, um, who will begin to study Buddhism, frequently ask, well, look, suffering, what does the Buddha say about that? Birth, aging, sickness, death. How is craving the origin of birth, sickness, aging, death? And the Buddha has said very clearly, this is suffering, birth, sickness, aging, death. This is the origin of suffering, craving. How is craving the origin of birth and sickness and aging and death? My mum is 96. She's got a serious case of old age, of aging. <laughs> and it is definitely suffering. There's no question about that. Now, in what sense is craving the origin of my mum's suffering? Now, the usual... I don't, want, I don't want to be too flippant, but the usual Vipassana answer to this is, well, it doesn't really mean that your mum's old age is the cause of craving, literally, but because she craves, in other words, because she's attached to certain things, because she has aversions, she doesn't like being old, um, she's frustrated with her situation, that causes unnecessary mental suffering. And I've heard some people say that there's a, you know, the Buddha is talking about pain, but we then add to that suffering. In other words, um, because my mother hasn't practiced Buddhism all her life, uh, when she gets old and grumpy, um, she's very unhappy. And the reason she's unhappy is because she can't accept things as they are. That she adds to this physical suffering, a kind of mental anguish and disquiet and loneliness and boredom and fed-upness and she can't stand the staff in her, in, in her residential home. <laughs> Causes her a lot of grief. Now, all of that is true. I'm not saying... That explanation is, I think, a very um, psychologically astute understanding of how our grasping and our attachment and our aversions and our fears add to the physical pain of being old or being sick. And that is usually presented as what it means to say that craving is the cause of suffering. I find that a very weak interpretation of this text, because that's not what the Buddha said. He didn't say, this is the noble truth of suffering, unnecessary mental anguish. No, he didn't. He said, birth, sickness, aging, death. Encountering what is not dear, being separation from what is not dear, not getting what one wants. These are conditions that happen to people, irrespective of whether they're enlightened or unenlightened. The first noble truth is basically saying, shit happens. And you can't do anything about it. That is what you're going to be encountering, what you're going to be exposed to, as long as you are in this body. The only, um, I think the only intelligible interpretation of craving is the cause of suffering. And again, it's, it's interesting, the Buddha uses the word, or the text uses the word samodaya. 
He's not saying craving causes suffering in the sense that it adds unnecessary mental pain, which obviously it does. He's saying craving is the origin. It's a much stronger word than cause. It's the source. In Tibetan it's translated as kunjung, which means the source of it all. That's a very strong claim. And we can't deny that that is what the text says. And the orthodox interpretation which is quite um, reasonable, is that when the Buddha says craving is the origin of suffering, he's meaning craving is the origin of getting reborn and having got born this time round. It only makes sense within a multi-life perspective. In other words, um, yes, craving does make your being old or sick more unpleasant than it should, than, than it has to be, But the real problem with craving is because it propels you into another life. It causes you to get born again. And this, again, there is a doctrine called nirvana with remainder and nirvana without remainder. As long as the Buddha or an arhant is in a body, he's going to continue to suffer. It's only when there is no more a body or even no more consciousness. Consciousness has to go too, I'm afraid. The cessation of, of the lot. When, you, stop, when you, you cut off the sources of rebirth, only then are you no longer going to suffer. Now whether you're going to be happy or not, we can't really say. Because all that we know in this human organism won't be there anymore. My first Tibetan teacher rather wittily put this, No head, no headache. (laughs) I'll do questions later. Um, Now that, of course, conforms to the classical model of um, Indian soteriology. Soteriology means the way we think about liberation or salvation. And that, I think, is strictly speaking how we have to understand craving if it is posited as the origin of suffering. In other words, we have to adopt a metaphysical belief that craving is the origin of what causes us to be born and reborn. That looks very much like metaphysics to me. I'm going to argue the opposite, that... um, in, if you think of the four truths as a sequence of, of uh, tasks, one which gives rise to the next, in that template, we can see it, it, it appears that craving is not the cause of suffering, but craving is actually the effect of suffering. In other words, craving is our response to pain. We crave to have what we like and we crave to get rid of what we don't like. And this is exactly how it's presented in the uh, doctrine of the, the 12 links of dependent origination. I'm not going to deal with the first ones. This is, again, a complicated story. Let's just stick to the, 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 the pragmatic parts of the 12 links. You have contact gives rise to feeling, Feeling gives rise to craving. 
And what gives rise to contact is being in a sensory world that is made possible through consciousness interacting with form and its own content, nama rupa. I'm not going to get into that. Basically, the, what the Twelve Links describes is that you find yourself in a world, a, a world mediated to you through the senses. You come into that world impacts you. It, it, the word is sparsa. You come into touch, literally, with that world. And that touch triggers, inevitably, a feeling of pleasure or pain. Vedana, feeling, feeling tone. And that feeling tone triggers craving. Now the feeling tone, of course, is sukha and dukkha. In other words, your, uh, your emotional, primary emotional given. You know, somebody, you know, you, you, you go up the, the spiral staircase here and you bang your head against the top of the stairs. Ouch. But of course, sukha in Buddhism is also seen as a kind of dukkha. Pleasure is painful because pleasure won't last. A pleasure of any kind might be very, very nice, but it is also a kind of dukkha because it'll fade. Or, for example, if you overindulge in what causes you pleasure, let's say Ben and Jerry's ice cream, it's a lot of pleasure if you eat maybe you know, a small jar of it, but if you keep going, you know what happens. It ceases to be sukha and it quickly becomes dukkha. It becomes horrible. Sticky, gooey, bloated stomach, yuck. <laughs> so, so, so in other words, Vedana is describing dukkha as is contact, as is all of these things. The Buddha says in the first sermon, in brief, the five aggregates are dukkha. The conditioned psychophysical experience that is happening all the time, that is dukkha. Another way of describing the five aggregates is the relationship between nama, rupa, and consciousness. Are you familiar with this? This is the third and the fourth of the twelve links. Is a name and form, which means basically form means the external world, the physical world, and nama means the mental processes that are involved in being conscious of that physical world. That is constantly interacting and giving rise to consciousness. I know this is complicated if you're not familiar with it, but trust me. In other words, nama rupa vijnana, the six senses, contact and feeling, are basically the five aggregates, but in a more processual description. So in other words, that is dukkha. The five aggregates, the text says, in the first noble truth, are dukkha. And it's that that gives rise to tanha, craving. So we have a problem here. Here we have another primary doctrine, which I think is a very pragmatic one, a very central one, which is saying the opposite to the Four Noble Truths. It's saying craving is the result of the five aggregates. You can't have craving without the five aggregates. You can't have craving without a world that you're impacting with. Craving, therefore, is, your, is the habitual, conditioned response to dukkha. It's not the cause. It's the response, it's the effect. It is what we do when we suffer. 
what we do in kind of most of the day probably. We're trying to get this and get rid of that. And that's tanha, craving. Next point I want to make. Another thing that Buddhists are very keen on, and I guess all human beings are keen on it, is this idea of the ending of suffering. Sounds wonderful. And people, it's taken so literally that I've had people come up to me and say, I've been practicing Buddhism for 10 years now, and I'm still suffering. (laughs) What what am I doing wrong? Now again, the ending of suffering, the third noble truth, is only intelligible, in other words, this, 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 this description of the third noble truth is only intelligible as not getting born again, nirvana, the final nirvana, the arhant's liberation. That is the only way to make sense of the end of suffering. Because, going back to the first noble truth, Birth is suffering, aging, sickness, death, encountering what you don't like, separation from what you do like, not getting what you want. No matter how enlightened you are, those things are still going to happen. So if they're not going to happen anymore, you have to get to a condition where you don't have a body or a consciousness. That is the ending of dukkha. The ending of dukkha doesn't mean, as it's sometimes presented, uh, being terribly mindful and being very aware and very accepting and you just don't suffer as much as you did before. <laughs> That's not the end of Dukkha. Now, one of the... Um, uh, you know, some, in, this, in my work on the reconstruction of the Buddha's life, it's quite clear that the Buddha suffered enormously. Um, he was struggling to create his community. He... Uh, had to deal with all kinds of conflicts, and towards the end of his life, he's basically in exile. To understand what I mean by that, you have to read the book. But the point is, the Buddha is embedded in a world um, that he cares for. He's not a detached monk who wanders off in the forest and just sort of, you know, washes his breath. But he's, he's a player in his world. In some of the Mahayana texts, and I'm particularly thinking of my favorite Mahayana text, which is the Bodhichari Avatara, the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, an 8th century poem by Shanti Deva. Um, I translated it from Tibetan years ago. It's available in many translations now. If you go to the end of chapter 6 on the perfection of patience, there's a passage there where the Shanti Deva says, If the Buddhas identify with others as themselves, how can they ever experience joy? In other words, if you have gone beyond your egoistic self-interest and you are empathetically identified with others, that you relate to the world from love and compassion, and you feel the pain of others as though it were your own, and I don't think you can really consider having metta or karuna without that empathetic identification, otherwise you're a sociopath, basically. (laughs) How can you be happy? Is Buddhism really about getting happy? I don't think so. It's never been my motive. Of course, I don't want to be unhappy, and I like being happy, but that seems to be secondary. 
Happiness, I consider to be a bonus. What the Buddha is teaching is how do we live in this world in a way in which our human life flourishes to an optimum degree. And that entails embracing the suffering of the world. And um, I find it rather cold and even callous to imagine that the Buddhist is this happy person and even when they switch on the TV and there are starving kids in Africa, they're still happy. If they were, I would really wonder what sort of practice they're doing. But seriously, I, th- I, think, this is an imp- I think this is a rather important point. So, <clears throat> um, on the w- so therefore, this ending of suffering um, can only mean the ending of rebirth, the ending of having a consciousness and a body. But what is really curious here is that when the Buddha defines the ending of suffering, the third noble truth, this is what he says. This is the cessation of suffering. It is the traceless fading away and cessation of craving, the letting go and abandoning of it, freedom and independence from it. I think this is the key. Because if you look at each of the other four truths, in other words, truth one, two, and four, when the Buddha um, says this is the noble truth of suffering, he then defines what suffering is. He takes the word dukkha and he says it's birth, aging, sickness, death, etc. He defines it. Second truth, the origin of suffering, which he thinks of as craving, he then defines craving. Craving is repetitive, It wallows in attachment and greed. It obsessively indulges in this and that. It is the craving for stimulation, for existence, for non-existence. In other words, he offers us a definition that helps us understand what he means by craving. Fourth truth, this is the noble, this is the noble path. He then describes it. He lists the eight features of the noble path. So you would expect, if he were consistent that when he says this is the ending of suffering, he explains what the ending of suffering is. He doesn't. He says the ending of suffering is the ending of craving. Uh Uh-uh. That's odd. The traceless fading away of craving. But let's imagine even in this life you have experienced the traceless fading away of craving. Is that equivalent to the ending of suffering? can't be because you're still going to get sick you're still going to get old you're still going to die things are going to happen to you that you don't want there's a problem here I think a very serious problem whereas if you remove this classical model of suffering the origin of suffering the ending of suffering the way to the ending you just put that to one side And here, if we go back to my analogy of deconstructing Buddhism, we've got down to pretty much the ground floor here now, and we're still clearing stuff away. Getting into the basement now, the really murky bit, the completely forgotten about. And uh, I think something else appears. I feel that if we um, go back to this model here of fully knowing suffering, is what leads to the falling away of craving, 
the falling away of craving is what leads to the cessation of craving, and that's very clear here, it doesn't lead to the cessation of suffering, it, the falling away of letting go of craving leads to the stopping of craving. It might just be for a moment, but that's a very, very important moment. It's the moment in which you know you do not have to live your life driven by the prompts of your attachments and your aversions and your fears and your hatreds. That is liberation. And you have to, and the Buddha says, this is to be experienced, is how I've translated it. The Pali word literally means you see it with your own eyes. You see it with your own eyes. You know for yourself, completely convinced that I am free from the impulses of my conditioning. I do not have to hate. I do not have to uh, 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 rush after things with attachment. I do not have to grasp. I'm free not to do those things. And that's what lies at the very heart of mindfulness or vipassana meditation. When you're sitting here, mindfully watching your breath, and all of this stuff bubbles up in your mind, which is basically the the product of, it's basically another way of calling, of describing craving. It's all these longings and fears and anxieties that just keep rushing up. In the still, quiet, focused space of meditation, of mindfulness, awareness, you see these things for what they are as just the impermanent play of the mind and thereby you are liberated from their controlling power. That is the freedom that we may glimpse even as we sit in our meditation today. And it's from such a state of freedom, such a recognition that I don't have to follow this stuff, that the possibility of another way of life in this world opens up. And that's the Eightfold Path. Now what is curious, again, and there's lots of curious things here, here we have the Buddha's first sermon, um, which starts with the Eightfold Path, that morphs into a description of the Four Truths, and then describes how each one is to be acted upon. And then the Buddha says, it was not until I had done all those tasks that I could consider myself to be fully awake, that... This idea of fully knowing dukkha, letting go of craving, experiencing cessation and cultivating the path, which you might think is a pretty important part of the whole process, is hardly ever mentioned again. In fact, probably many Buddhists have never even heard of this, the, these four tasks. Fortunately, there are some books that are now coming out. Philip Moffat's book um, addresses this, which is good. Ajahn Sumedho's into this but not quite in the way that I'm presenting it, I'm afraid. But I do think it's a very, very crucial thing. And yet why, when you look up Dukkha Parinya, fully knowing suffering, and you try to find other passages in the canon where the Buddha speaks about it, and particularly its relation to letting go of craving, experiencing the cessation of craving, etc., you don't find hardly anything. It's not a thread that was ever really developed. There's a very interesting sutta <clears throat> in here, Marjama Nikaya. This is called the Satcha Vibhanga Sutta, the exposition of the truths, the Four Noble Truths. And um, here we have a text where the Buddha 
goes back to the deer park at Isipatana or Sanata and he brings with him his two leading disciples Sariputta and Moggallana and he says at Banaris Bhikkhus in the deer park at Isipatana the Tathagata set rolling the matchless wheel of the Dhamma which cannot be stopped by any recluse or Brahmin or God or Mara that is announcing teaching describing establishing revealing expounding and exhibiting these four noble truths then he praises Sariputta, he praises Moggallana, and then he steps back, and Sariputta delivers the exposition of the Four Noble Truths. And now what he does, he repeats more or less, um, <clears throat> well he expands on it a bit. But basically he gives an explanation, he gives an, uh, a, a vibhanga, which means like an explanation or a, a commentary, on the four truths, following exactly the sequence of this text, until he gets to, this is suffering, it can be fully known, this is craving, it can be let go of, no mention. He doesn't, doesn't discuss it at all. He doesn't, his commentary stops with the ending of the exposition of the definitions of the four truths. He doesn't go any further. I find that odd. The, the Buddha's gone back to the park, reminded his monks that this is where he taught the first sermon, get Sariputta to say something about it, and Sariputta only explains two-thirds of it. So, my hunch, for what it's worth, is that um, this particular reading of the four truths, the reading of the four truths as interconnected tasks, which culminate in the Eightfold Path, was somehow um, not developed. And instead, the Four Truths were seen as an alternative template for realizing the goals of Indian religion, namely the ending of birth and death. But let's... Um, oh, wait a minute, we've been talking nearly an hour. Um, let's have a pause. Um, let's have some questions, maybe, and then we'll have a pause. But I have, I, I, we still haven't got to the, probably the most important bit. <laughs> Are there any comments or questions? Yes. Uh, micro, microphone, microphone. Uh, when you were talking about how can you uh, see the suffering of others and... Um, and still be happy. And still be happy. Um, I mean to remember uh, Robert Thurman talking about mm -hmm. uh, the fact that we're all enlightened right now and we're all Buddhas right now, mm -hmm. even though we don't know it. And so his, use, his, it? He was postulating that um, <clears throat> I can look at you and see the Buddha within you, <clears throat> therefore I'm happy, even though you don't recognize that right now and you may be suffering. Okay, so the, the, let's put this into a more concrete example. Let's imagine that you are in Auschwitz. And you will look at the people around you and say, well, you're all Buddhas. You don't realize it, but you're all Buddhas. Is, it, is that really a very appropriate or helpful way to deal with Auschwitz? It sounds nice in the abstract. It could be. Well, maybe. But the point is, um, this, this, I can certainly accept the idea that all beings are potentially Buddhas. We all have the capacity to wake up. That is, I think, a primary 
um, uh, primary uh, uh, sort of commitment, really, that one would have to have in following this kind of path. This is not just something for you know, in a, a particular type of person. It's a universal teaching. And clearly, all beings have the capacity to wake up, and that's what the Buddha is very clear about. Men, women, poor, rich, different castes. The Buddha rejected that this sort of practice is the preserve of a particular social group or a priestly caste. It is open to all. Lay men, lay women, monks, nuns, all of them are able to enter this path. But it's not something that is already complete in itself. That I don't accept. I don't think, I don't know what it means to say you are already a Buddha. Well, I don't, let's forget about Robert Thurman. Okay. And, and, and again, you'd have to argue this. You'd have to argue this with Robert Thurman. Um, um, to me, it's a fairly. It can be an inspirational idea, but I don't think it's true. I'm not a Buddha. Maybe, maybe you are. Maybe I'm the only one who isn't. But I don't find it awfully helpful to think that way. I find it helpful to think that I have the capacity to be more awake in every moment. And to see the Buddha as an example of what a human life could be, and I can aspire to that through my practice of the path, which is hard work, and I keep messing up and getting it wrong and screwing up. That, to me, is a more humanist account of that idea. But um, I can't, in all good faith, um, acknowledge that every person I meet is a Buddha. I don't know what that means. It's, it is an idea that you find in, in, in later Mahayana texts, but nowhere in the Pali Canon does the Buddha ever suggest such a thing. It is a rather mystical idea, perhaps, and people may find it of value. But frankly, I think it could also be a way in which you could somehow, a device of, of failing to acknowledge the actual pain and suffering and, and imperfection and confusion of a person's life. You're really a Buddha, you just don't know it. If you don't know it, it's of no help. I've actually got three questions, so you can decide what you want okay. to respond to. But um, you were earlier saying that you know you don't understand rebirth, but then after you gave the description of the third noble truth as not being born again is the only way to make sense of it. To make sense of the ending of suffering. Yes, it is. In other words, the, that classical model of those four titles of the four truths only makes sense within the framework of multiple lifetimes. So then what does that mean if you don't believe in multiple lifetimes? It doesn't mean anything at all. No, that, that, that is the problem. <laughs> it means, I, I mean, I don't practice Buddhism in order that I'm not going to get reborn again because I, I don't believe there is rebirth. So it's meaningless to me. So then where does that leave you with regard to the Four Noble Truths? Well, I've just been trying to explain okay. that. It means that... <laughs> and then you discard it, or you just... You're, well, thank, you're just I, I, to I, I, I used to have a healthy agnosticism with regard to it. I used to say, I don't know. Which I suppose, deep, deep down, in all honesty, since we're, we're not omniscient beings, I have to admit, I don't know. Maybe there is rebirth. I don't know. Frankly, I think it's extremely unlikely. And also, as the Buddha says, as I understand what the Buddha said, in any case, it's irrelevant. If I live this life according to how I'm describing these four truths as a way to live 
with wisdom, with compassion, with morality, with concern for others, and to seek in every instance of my life to live from that space and to address the suffering of the world. If there is another life, then I can't think of a better way to prepare for it. If there's not another life, I can't think of a better way to live here and now. It's a win-win situation. <laughs> but this, the other life thing and being motivated for another life, that to me is a distraction and an irrelevance and it has nothing to do with fully knowing suffering, letting go of craving, experiencing moments in which the craving stops in order to engage with the world from another perspective altogether. The rest is really of little interest. And then also, I'm not clear that what you're saying, you started out saying if you had a, a Zen, a Tibetan, mm. and, a, and so where are you putting this in terms of the Buddha and the culture that he grew up in? Well, again, you see, this is it's a good question. The, the, the Buddha was not, uh, is not some magical being who descended from earth in a white elephant, according to the classical legends, uh, from the Tashita heaven, and then was born out of his mother's side, whatever that means, and, <laughs> and then uh, fulfilled all of the predictions in a sort of messianic way of what Buddhas do, and then he disappears, and we don't know what happens to him after his death. Um, that is really the, the mythology of a godlike being. It's not a human being. Human beings don't, as I'm aware, do that. And he's got all these weird marks all over his body. He's got a big lump of flesh on his head. He's got a tongue that can lick both ears. <laughs> but but m most Buddhists through history have, have believed that that's what the Buddha looked like. It's true. I mean, there's plenty of text in here. This is the Majjhima Nikaya. There's a couple of suttas in here where a Brahmin hears that there's a Buddha around and a Buddha has, de by definition, these 32 marks. So he goes to the Buddha and he, he examines his body. And he, and he comes out and says, yeah, that's right, you do. Amazing. <laughs> now, um, if... Sorry, can you just repeat the question? I got distracted. <laughs> Kind of, you know that I'm interested in what in the, the real life of the Buddha was and what text you're getting mm -hmm. that out of. But also, I was just curious about how this all is contextualized, how we can see this as part of the culture that the Buddha grew up oh, in. Oh, I'm sorry, so that's right. Nobody is born, uh, nobody can live in the world without being conditioned by the culture of which they're a part. Uh, and that includes us and it includes the Buddha. We are, we are, we are educated. We are acculturated uh, to the worldview that our society shares. We, most of us, accept on trust that, for example, our bodies are made of atoms and electrons and neutrons and neutrinos and quarks and leptons and klingons and gluons. But that's pure belief. I mean, if you try to explain that to someone who didn't believe it, I think, unless you happen to be an atomic scientist, you wouldn't get very far. So the Buddha, too, would have been born in a world of which certain assumptions were simply part of the landscape of the life of that times, of those times. Um, he would have believed, he, you know, he, I'm sure he accepted that the world was flat, that it was surrounded by an ocean, and in the ocean is the Mount Sumeru. This was the classic Indian cosmology. It would have. 
it, it wouldn't have been part of that culture in the developed form we find it in Buddhism today. Again, we can find this in the Upanishads. If you read the early Upanishads, there is not yet a consensus in those texts as to what happens to you after death. There's not an agreement as to the different realms of rebirth. All there is is a broad consensus that after death you will be born according to your deeds. And the aim of the practice of tapas, of religious ritual and um, particularly yogic practice, is to free you from the cycle of rebirth. So to that extent, rebirth was a fixture of the Buddha's world. If you look at Jainism, it's the same idea. Mahavira also speaks in terms of finding freedom from the cycle of birth and death. He's got a different strategy about you know, living an utterly pure life where you don't accumulate the weight of actions or karma, so you become free from, from the world. And so to some extent, I think we, can, um, uh, we have to recognize that the Buddha was also a creature of that time and that world. I think what is remarkable about the Buddha is that he seems, at least in some of the passages that I've selected here, uh, to be a, a fairly radical critic of that worldview. He rejects the uh, social structure of his time. Um, he rejects um, uh, many of the key religious ideas, the idea of Atman and Brahman, God and soul. Um, he gives a radically new reading of many uh, classical ideas. He's, uh, he's a reformer. He stands in a similar relationship to Brahmanical Hinduism as Jesus does in relation to Judaism. He's, in other words, he's, he's, he's coming out of that culture and presumably still accepts certain elements of it. I don't think it's contradictory to say that he perhaps did believe in rebirth. I don't know. He may, may have, or he may simply have found it to be a, a non a, a teaching that was not in contradiction with his own. But I think there are suggestions that, in fact, he wanted to go beyond all of that. He wanted to create, he wanted to leave as his legacy a community and a dhamma, a doctrine or a law, really. The word dhamma means law, that would enable people to live in this world in a radically different way. Again, going back to the metaphor of the city to create a new kind of civitas, a new kind of civilization. But I think even with, within the Buddha's time, there appear to have been conflicting elements within his sangha, within his community, which are defined to some extent, I think, by the social background of the different monks. When you became a monk or a nun in the Buddhist community of the Buddha's time, you relinquished all your caste identity. You were no longer a Brahmin or a ruler. You were simply a follower of the Buddha. A, 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 no, well, a stream entry, yes. Yeah, stream entry. But I'll come, I'm going to come back to stream entry. But he calls it, a, a, you are a, a child of the Sakyan sage or something like this. So he, he posits his sangha, his community, as one which is a kind of microcosm of, an, of another kind of society, which he sought to establish in his world during his lifetime. But one of the things that has, was most striking in trying to reconstruct the Buddha's life 
is the passages in the canon that describe the events that happened immediately after his death until the first council about nine months later. So what happens, uh, and it's remarkable how much evidence there is for this, is that there was a power struggle. A struggle which focused around two figures, Ananda and Mahakasyapa. Mahakasapa. Mahakasapa was an elderly Brahmin, a recent member of the monastic community, who saw himself as the spiritual successor of the Buddha. And Ananda, who was a, not a, a Brahmin, but a, a, a nobleman, a cousin of the Buddha, his attendant for 25 years, who insisted on the Buddha's injunction that the, after his death, the community should have no leader, but should model itself on the republican form of government that still survived in Vaishali, which is the last of the republics in India. In other words, he saw the Dhamma as the, te- as the teacher. And this is what the Buddha says repeatedly at the end of his life. Don't think that after I am gone, Ananda, you will have no teacher. The Dhamma will be your teacher. And then Mahakasapa comes along and says, I'm your teacher. Trust me. <laughs> Watch my lips. <laughs> And he takes over. By the time of the First Council, Mahakasapa is in charge. So I think that illustrates that there was a, already a tension between different visions or different versions of what uh, the Buddha um, intended as his legacy. And there's a beautiful text here. This is, um, this is from the Terigata. The Terigata, which are the verses of the elders collected in the Pali Canon. They're a series of four-line stanzas. And a whole, uh, about 15 of them are attributed to Ananda. And this is what Ananda is said to have, re- have composed um, on hearing of the death of Sariputta, which died shortly before the Buddha. I think it might actually refer to the death of the Buddha himself. Ananda says, They of old have passed away. The new men suit me not at all. Alone today this child doth brood like nesting bird when rain doth fall. Now that's the sort of text that lit... It jumps off the page. This is not like most of the Terigata, which is largely reiterations of Buddhist doctrine. Here we have something that sounds like pure poetry. And when you put it in context, as I do in this book, <laughs> you can see very clearly that it's after the Buddha's death, after the death of the person who mattered most to him, Ananda feels as bereft as a little bird in a nest. Its parents have flown, have gone away, and the rain is beginning to fall. Now, this is imagistically very powerful stuff. And it hasn't been edited out. It's still in the canon. Now, to me, this points very explicitly to a sense from Ananda's point of view that um, what he had spent his life 
seeking to uh, develop and establish um, is now probably not going to happen because the new men, Mahakasapa and his followers, who don't suit him at all, are now taking charge. And there's many passages, and I, they're all in this book, where Mahakasapa is basically um, uh, ridiculing and uh, abusing Ananda verbally. It's, it's very tragic. So I feel that the poss- possibly the die was cast um, for the sort of uh, orthodoxy that dominates the canon shortly after the Buddha's death. Is this why Ananda looks so badly in the suttas and so many passages? It, looked badly, what do you mean? So badly. He, he, there seems to be a lot of criticism of Ananda in the suttas. Uh, there's a number of passages in which he's not paying attention and the, the Buddha wants to say something to him and uh, he's, he's off meditating. Or There's a number of passages where he doesn't look very good. Well, it could be. I mean, I'm not, in, I'm not sure exactly which passages you refer to. But it, it, it's certainly true that the Ananda is considered only to have become a stream entrant, not an arahant. But what is curious is that when you read these suttas, um, you, the Buddha gives a discourse, and then it'll say, and after this discourse, 15 members of the audience became arahants, 50 became stream entrants. Um, and yet Ananda, who was the Buddha's attendant for 25 years, only ever remains a stream entrant. Not only that, the Buddha very often, not very often, but on occasion, asks Ananda to teach, to give the discourse instead of him. Mahakasapa is not once in the canon recorded as having delivered a sermon. So, to what extent does the later tradition or the, or the orthodox monks want to present Ananda in a bad light? That certainly occurs in some of the passages I cite here because they want to somehow present their particular version of orthodoxy as the dominant one and Ananda's version as something that's you know, really not so, perhaps even misguided and wrong. I don't know, but I would have a hunch that something like that might have happened. Yes. Uh, this is actually a more historical question. Uh-huh. Like during the time, like during Ashoka's empire, when a lot of the Buddhist people went to the other countries, like China and others, did people who followed different particular things who were not satisfied with, like the Mahakashyapa teachings, did they leave or? I mean, I don't know. I'm just asking. Well, we don't know. We what? What? Uh, the trouble with the. Well, not the trouble. I mean, the, the Pali Canon covers a period of time from around the Buddha's enlightenment and it records some events before that and then it cuts off at the first council which is about nine months after the Buddha's death. And that's like an incredible window. It's the first historic window in Indian history. <laughs> Suddenly we have a human world. We don't have Sita and Rama running off to Sri Lanka. <laughs> we have human beings and all of their messiness and quirkiness. Uh, that appear through the pages of the Pali Canon. After the First Council, it goes silent. And the next historical evidence we have of what was happening in India is the Ashokan Edicts. 
which are the first epigraphic evidence, in other words, carved writing on rock, that then presents, gives us another glimpse. It's, it's actually, I, I don't, Ashoka did address some of his edicts to the Buddhist community. It's probably an exaggeration to say that he was a, uh, that he was only interested in supporting the Buddhist community. He actually had a very pluralistic, a very tolerant idea of um, religious life in India. He was supporting other groups as well, the Ajivakas and all sorts of people. Um, Buddhism did not go to China until about 300 years after Ashoka. And by that time, I think, um, the kind of mainstream Indian orthodoxy had been more or less settled. The canon was written down in the first century BC in Sri Lanka, which suggests a kind of what's called a closing of the canon. In other words, now it's fixed. And so the transmission of Buddhism outside of India begins, I think, only after four or five hundred years of the Buddha's death, by which time the canonical texts are largely fixed. Uh, and it's only the Mahayana developments that then begin to evolve other teachings and ideas, and they were very popular outside of India. Andrea? A microphone? So going back to the third noble truth. Oh, good, yes. Yeah. LAUGHTER <laughs> First of all, I want to say that I find this extremely interesting and it's a, a refreshing take on the Four Noble Truths. But I do want to propose an alternative um, definition of the ending of suffering that doesn't necessarily require a belief or need mm. for thinking about it as rebirth. And that is um, that he said that the five aggregates are suffering, the five aggregates mm -hmm. of clinging are suffering and that realizing the cessation of the five aggregates might take place in a moment. Mm -hmm. um, that, that that could be partly what he's talking about, this seeing that cessation and re-arising. And then it also occurred to me, and I, this, is, this is really um, just a, a crazy kind of thought, that uh, the Buddha used words in so many different ways. As you said, he redefined terms. Mm. I mean, even the term like kanda, which was a kind of a... Um, in use in the time of his day, meaning just heap or bundle. Mm -hmm. He used that to mean a, a part of the mind-body process. Mm -hmm. Maybe he was redefining the terms aging, death, <laughs> that birth, birth being the arising, death being the cessation, aging being the, dis the, the dissolution uh -huh. of, etc. So they know that, that that is another alternative definition of the definition of uh -huh. suffering. Well, that's certainly one way one, one, one could go. And that would be... And, and this, this approach, I think, is quite, um, is quite, a, quite a, a widespread one in, in, uh, an, in attempts to make sense of classical Indian ideas in the context of modernity. I mean, a very good example is how people say, you know, rebirth doesn't literally mean getting born in another body. It means that you're reborn every moment. Rebirth is a, just a metaphor, a symbol for the fact that our lives are, as it were, a constant process of death and rebirth. And in the same vein, yes, you might explain birth, aging, sickness, death as not to be taken literally, but to be taken as a kind of metaphor for how we understand the process of life as it happens and rises and passes away in each moment. Certainly one can do that. And likewise, the, the ending of suffering as the 
you know, the, the, the cessation of the five aggregates in the moment, whatever that means. I don't know what that means. But, um, but yes, that would certainly be another way to go. But the problem is that in the Buddha's own definition of the ending of suffering, the third noble truth, um, he, he's quite explicitly referring not to anything about the five aggregates stopping. He says, I have to repeat this because it takes so hard to get used to this, the traceless fading away and cessation of craving. That's what he says. The traceless fading away and cessation of that craving. The letting go and abandoning of it, freedom and independence from it, is specifically to do with craving, I feel. <laughs> but, um, I thought but, of that, but I thought I'd put it out there anyway. <laughs> it occurred to me that was the, the, the point that was... Well, that that was, I, th- I think that's a very important point. And um, it, it's the hinge on which my interpretation rests. Yes, here. I, I've enjoyed this very much. Uh, I, if you look at the Four Noble Truths as cyclical, just like you look at dependent origination, it seems to make more sense. It seems to fit basically what you're talking about. Because it, once you stop craving, then there's no more birth of suffering. You know, it's very cyclical. It doesn't say that suffering begins, it's called the first truth, but craving causes us to have suffering, suffering, uh, old age, sickness, death, etc., causes us to crave. Mm-hmm. Do you follow what I'm saying? No, I do. So if you mm-hmm. get into dependent origination, when we talk about birth and death, we're actually talking about attachment to not aging. We're mm-hmm. talking about attachment to uh, dying. Well, dying ends everything. Mm. But if you don't have the attachment to those mm-hmm. things, they still happen. I still get old, but I don't suffer. It seems like we're confusing suffering and pain. You know, I still could have a whole lot of pain. And I've got... I've, no, thank you for that. Well, uh, but I, I mentioned this. This is, I think, the vipassana default orthodoxy: is we have suffering, but we don't. We have pain, but we don't suffer. It's, this again, it's an int- it's a perfectly legitimate way to look at it, and I think it's true. But I don't think it's what the Buddha is saying here. I, I, one way I would summarize this: the problem with craving is not that it is the cause of suffering, although obviously in many cases it is. The problem with craving is that it prevents us from entering the Eightfold Path. Craving is what locks us into a fixation with me and my desires and my wants and an endless chasing after some kind of gratification or some kind of avoidance of what irritates me. In other words, when you get to the second noble truth, craving, tradition tells you to then look back to the first. The problem with craving is it causes you suffering. I think that's going in the wrong direction. The problem with craving is that it blocks you from the experience of letting go of craving, which allows you to enter the path. Craving is basically the, it's an, it's existential inhib, inhibition. It's, it's a blockage. A lot of this, I think, is clear in the metaphors the Buddha uses around Mara. See, Mara is craving. 
Mara, the devil, the, the demonic. And there's a passage in the Diga Nikaya where the Buddha says, whenever a person grasps, Mara stands beside them. Now the problem with Mara, Mara is that which, um, which limits and um, in a sense um, uh, almost destroys our capacity to live fully. Mara is that which prevents our life from flourishing. Whereas Buddha is a metaphor for a life that is flourishing. And the framework for that is the Eightfold Path. So the problem with craving is not that it causes suffering. The problem with craving is it prevents us from entering the Eightfold Path, which means stream entry. And that, I think, is a more useful way to think about it than getting into this metaphysics and, you know, I'm attached to this and I have... You know, I can get rid of the suffering, but I still have a bit of pain. That may be true, but I think it misses the point. Here, yes. In your book, well, yes, Living with the Devil, um, you define a path as the absence of impediments. Yes, that's right. Yeah, exactly. And it seems pertinent to the discussion, right? Now, mm-hmm. do you still stand by that? Yes, definition? yes, yes. Um, no, you do, the um, <clears throat> to me the opposite of Mara, the the demonic, that which keeps you closed down and locked into your petty egoic existence, is the living a life along a path. In other words, Mara is that which blocks you from entering the path. Craving is that which blocks you from entering the Eightfold Path. That's the problem with Mara, the problem with craving, is that it keeps our lives limited, fixed and petty and also makes our world somehow opaque and flat and boring. Um, No, I stand by everything I wrote in in Living with the Devil. Living with the Devil was really a, a rather philosophical bridge between Buddhism without beliefs and... This. (laughs) This. <laughs> um, but, uh, but also, no, th- thank you for that. Um, I do, my next book, <laughs> which is not written yet, I plan to be um, a, a, a rather scholarly analysis of the first sermon. In other words, to really try to rethink the Dhamma Chaka Pavatna Sutta along the lines that I'm outlining here. Yes, there, there. Was it you? Have one too? Yes. The um, your your reference to Mahakasapa being the the in some sense an heir apparent. I recall um, reading something about the Sarvastivadin fragments that were in the Agamas that indicated that that they rated Kasapa above Sariputta as the Buddha's chief disciple, ah. and I. And in light of your description of the power struggle, I was wondering if, since you said there was a lot of evidence about that, I was wondering if you knew anything more about that. Whether that's that, you know, the kind of that kind of power struggle led to the kind of well, the I, schools. Well, I'd find that I'd be very interested in getting that source. It was um, the, it was the, um, uh, the guy's name is Chow, I think. Uh, he wrote a, a comparison of a number of the suttas in the. Oh, okay. And so there, in the the Savastavada, for those who don't know, is, is one of the earliest so-called Hinayana schools that flourished in India after the Buddha's death, particularly in north-east India, roughly around the area the Buddha taught. And the Agamas 
are the translation into Chinese of the Sanskrit version of the Pali Canon that the Savastavadins um, uh, maintain. So uh, a lot of work, and this book refers to that, is a, compar- a lot of work is being done to compare the Pali Canon with the Agamas, which are a Chinese translation of the Savastavada Canon. Now, if the Savastavada Canon um, states explicitly that Mahakasapa was the patriarch of the uh, was was the successor of the Buddha, and in a sense, therefore, more important than Sariputta and Moggallana, who were dead by the time the Buddha see Sariputta and Moggallana um, had died within a, f- a few months of the Buddha's death. It's a great disaster, really, and Kasapa then took over in the power vacuum, basically. Now, of course, in the Zen tradition, Mahakasapa is seen as the first patriarch, right? He's the one who, you know, Buddha held up a flower and Mahakasapa smiled. But if you look at the portrait of Mahakasapa in these texts, he doesn't come across as a smiling at flowers kind of guy. And, there's, and the, he, he claims, also, and this would give credence to the Zen tradition, Mahakasapa claims to have, ex, to have been given the Buddha's worn-out hempen robe on, um, uh, on a, telling the Buddha of his great spiritual experiences. And um, so that's actually quite a lot of confirmation in the, in the Pali Canon of the, uh, the fact of Mahakasapa having become the dominant figure after the Buddha's death. I'll read you some of the things Mahakasapa says. <clears throat> yeah, this is Mahakasapa defending himself against criticism because uh, there's a couple of occasions in, in the Sangyutanikaya where Kasapa, they're going, the Buddha's died, Kasapa and Ananda are going down to Rajgir for the first council and they stop on the way and, they give, and Mahakasapa gives talks and at the end of the talks inevitably a nun stands up and says, how dare Mahakasapa be giving this talk next to Ananda? It's very explicit. And so Ananda, so Mahakasapa, she's, oh, this is, when Ananda, <clears throat> um, it goes on and on and on. Okay, An, while they're waiting for the first council in Rajgir, Ananda goes off on a walking tour in the southern hills, the Dakinagiri. When Ananda returned to Rajgaha, he was summoned to see Kasapa. Kasapa had learned that while Ananda was in the southern hills, 30 of the young monks accompanying him had disrobed and returned to lay life. Your retinue is breaking apart, Ananda, he said. Your young followers are slipping away. You don't know your measure, boy. Are these not grey hairs growing on my head, said Ananda? You have no right to call me boy. When the nun Nanda, Tula Nanda, fat Nanda, heard about this exchange, she came to Ananda's defense. How, she asked, can Kasapa, who was formerly a member of another sect, think to disparage Ananda by calling him a boy? Kasapa then felt obliged to, dis- to justify himself at length. He told the story of meeting the Buddha on the road to Nalanda of being praised by him as an exceptional disciple and then being given his worn-out patched robe. If anyone could say, if one could say of anyone, Kasapa says, 
that he is born of the Buddha's breast, born of his mouth, born of the Dhamma, an heir to the Dhamma, a receiver of worn-out hempen rags, he insisted. It is of me that one could rightly say this. In this very life, I enter and dwell in the taintless liberation of mind. One might as well think that a bull elephant could be concealed by a palm leaf as think that my direct knowledge could ever be concealed. <laughs> this, is in, this is in the Sangyuta Nikaya. Where? Well, I'll tell you exactly. It's in, there's a section in the Sangyuta Nikaya, the connected discourses of the Buddha. This is page 233. Hang on. Uh, called the Kasapa Sangyuta, the connected discourses on Kasapa. I'll give you the exact page. Two, three, three. Um, God, there's so many footnotes in this book. Oh, God, here we are. It's in... Uh, yeah, that's in Sangyuta Nikaya 2, in the Pali numeration, 218 to 19. It's on pages 677 to 9 in Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation. 677 to 9. So there's a whole sequence of, 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 of passages connected to Kasapa. Um, I find it amazing that these passages survived, mm. frankly. It's, uh, it's, it's a, and they're not known. And yet that's the, it's there in the, in the camp. Um, let's have a pause. Or do you have a question, a quick one? I just had a comment. Okay. Um, prior to when you were talking about... Um, reincarnation and stuff, it was suggested to me by a friend, I thought I'd share that the cause of death for all of us is birth, mm-hmm. basically. But as you went back to um, the practical aspect of what Buddha was teaching as far as not answering specific questions, mm-hmm. am I here when I die, am I not, mm. is there an afterlife, is mm. there not, that these are not questions to ask because they don't lead to the immediate cessation of your current suffering so that whether or not you can know about rebirth and mm-hmm. whether they're they're unknowable so they're essentially irrelevant whether you get I understand the logic of how you get from mm. uh, you know if there's a cause for old age and mm. death and those things that that precludes there must be a rebirth cycle but it's my understanding that Buddha basically said Forget those things. That's right. Now that, Don't pay any attention mm, to them. Now, that, now that, that, is the, that, I think, is what is distinctive in his, what he calls the undeclared statements. He, he's not saying yes or no. He's saying this is irrelevant. Right. Not knowable. To some no, 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 no. He's not saying that. He's saying it's irrelevant. Mm. That's the two different things. It might be knowable, but he says even if it is, it's irrelevant. Okay, let's say it's four o'clock now. We only have uh, just over an hour left. Am I right? Um, Let's take a break.